Good afternoon. We're in uh, a series right now going through the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm just going to jump right in. If you would please open up your Bibles, we're in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to hit the last paragraph today. We're talking about righteousness. It's kind of the big theme. In fact, over the past six weeks, we've been working through a section on the or in the Sermon on the Mount, in which Jesus is teaching us about the kind of righteousness that ought to mark the citizens of God's kingdom. It's an interesting section because as Jesus is teaching this, I mean, imagine it, he's out there preaching the Sermon on the Mount. As he's teaching it, his original audience has no idea how his story ends. Which means that they don't know that as they're listening to him, that he's going to die in order to pay the debt that they owe to God for their sin. And they don't know that he's going to experience a bodily resurrection three days later and be exalted to the right hand of God, enthroned as King of the universe. They don't know that God's going to send His Holy Spirit to live within them and empower them to live transformed lives. Eventually, they know the rest of the story. Those who continued to follow Jesus and saw these things unfold. They could think back now on the things that Jesus once taught. And they can now interpret those things in light of the rest of the story. That's kind of the situation that we're in. We can read the Sermon on the Mount, but we know the full story. We know how it ends. And it's important to point these things out as we look at the kind of life that Jesus is calling us, citizens of His kingdom... It's important that we realize that we ought to interpret the Sermon on the Mount through the lens of the Gospel. We need to know the Gospel. Because the things that Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount are impossible for people to do. Unless we understand and believe The Gospel, that God has made a way for sinners to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ by faith alone, apart from works of the law. You have to know the Gospel. You have to believe the Gospel. You have to have been born again and indwelt by the Spirit of God. Otherwise, the things that Jesus is telling us here will be impossible. For us to do. So I want to make sure that as we continue walking through this, that we understand that Jesus is talking about what life looks like for people who have the Holy Spirit living inside of them because they have become children of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if the Spirit of God has now given us new life, then indeed we will bear the fruit of righteousness. The word that Jesus uses. A lifestyle of good works. In fact, in chapter 5, verse 20, as Jesus is introducing this section, He talks about how our righteousness is something that needs to exceed that of the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees Because, this is the reason that it exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, the righteousness that flows from the lives of God's people is flowing from a transformed heart. 
So Jesus teaches us now about what the life of a Christian ought to look like. And while it certainly manifests itself in good works, upright behavior, the root of holy living resides in what God's doing in our hearts. It's a change that takes place on the inside and moves its way outward. Now this doesn't mean that we are sinless people by any means or that we will ever reach a point on this side of eternity where we are done sinning, but it does mean that we are supposed to be different people. We're not the same people that we used to be. I remember uh, D.A. Carson receiving a Uh, some sort of honor at a conference, and uh, he quoted somebody, I can't remember who this quote was from, but he said uh, something to the effect of, I am not who I am supposed to be, but I am certainly not what I used to be. That's the reality of what Christ does in our Lives. He changes us. And for Jesus' people, citizens of the kingdom, those who are living in the freedom and the power supplied to us by the gospel through the Holy Spirit, it's not enough that we don't murder, for example, Jesus told us in verses 21 and following. It's not enough that we don't murder. He calls us to put to death the anger in our hearts that drives us that direction. It's not enough that we resist adultery. He calls us to put to death the lustful drive that causes our eyes to gawk. He wants to create faithfulness in the heart and a profound understanding of His merciful faithfulness to us so that we can do the same to our spouses so that our marriages last. Verses 31 and following. God wants us to be marked by honesty. And integrity, so that a simple yes or a simple no means something when it comes from us. Verses 33 and following. He wants us not only to avoid retaliation, we saw last week, but he wants us to actively pursue the good of those who are evil. Verses 38 and following. This is the righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And we're going to pick it up right here today in verse 43. It's right on the heels of this idea of Not only should you not retaliate, but I want you to move in and do good for those who are evil. And Jesus picks it up in verse 43 with this. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, who who said that? It's interesting, Jesus starts all these, these little paragraphs with the same kind of phrase. You have heard that it was said. Well, who said, love your neighbor... And hate your enemy. Well, the first half comes from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Comes right out of the Torah. And here's how that reads. Leviticus 19, 18 says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So here we have a a sound admonishment from Moses to the people of Israel saying, make sure you don't hate your brother. And then he clarifies who the brother is. He says it's the sons of your own people. Israelites don't hate other Israelites. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. Leviticus 19, 18. The sons of your own people. That's not how we treat each other. 
We're family. And it's in that context to read this famous command. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. Well, how should you treat the sons of your own people then? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the natural interpretation of the meaning of the word neighbor in Leviticus 19 is your fellow Jew. Jews, love your fellow Jew as you do yourself. Now, if that's a fair interpretation of Leviticus 19 in its original context, Jesus has something to say about that later on, in, actually in Luke chapter 10, but that's another sermon. What might that imply if I'm supposed to love my fellow Jew? What might that imply about others who aren't Jews? People who are my enemies, the enemies of Israel. That is, if the law teaches that we should love our own people, then how should we treat those who are not our own people? How should we treat people who aren't our neighbors? How should we treat people who aren't our brothers? How should we treat our enemies? And some people had an answer for that. And Jesus quotes it in verse 43. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That was how they seem to interpret that. As though if love is what's required required for the neighbor, then hatred must be the logical requirement for our enemies. But the second half of that verse is actually found nowhere in the Old Testament. It doesn't say anywhere you shall hate your enemy. I'm not exactly sure where the teaching came from. Perhaps people thought it was just an implication. If you're supposed to love your neighbor, then I guess the implication is that you should hate your enemy. But... We don't really know for sure where it came from. There is some evidence of this kind of thinking in Jesus' day. For example, the Qumran community. Now, these were the, the, the super radically devout Jews in the time of Jesus who preserved the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Qumran community had a teaching that went like this. This is from the 1QS scroll. It says, teach them both to love all the children of light and to hate all the children of darkness. The Qumran community believed we need to teach our community that they are to love all the children of light and to hate all the children of darkness, each commensurate with his guilt and the vengeance due him from God. Hate all the children of darkness with a hatred that is proportionate to the vengeance that is due to the wicked by God. I mean, hate them. So... Jesus may not specifically be referring to what the Qumran community was teaching, but it just shows that there were some Jewish teachers in Christ's time that were saying things of this nature. And in all likelihood, all Jesus is doing here is consolidating kind of the popular opinion and articulating it. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And as we read just a few minutes ago, as Eugene read for us, Jesus wants to set the record straight on how we should be thinking of our enemies because Jesus desires a righteousness in his people that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. It's a righteousness that's hinted at in the law, but it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And in this case, here's what it looks like. It's not merely love for your neighbor. The fulfillment of the law requires us to treat our enemies like our neighbors. To love our enemies. Verse 44. But I say to you, 
Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's the, that's the big heartbeat of Jesus' teaching today. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Last week we saw a few examples of what it looks like to do good to the evil person. Jesus just gave us some in verses 38 to 42. So turn the other cheek. If you're sued for your tunic, give your cloak as well. Those are examples of what it looks like to love your enemy. This week we get another example. It's praying for your persecutors. Pray for those who persecute you. Now clearly Jesus means pray good things for those who persecute you. That is, pray for God's blessing on their lives. We may be tempted to pray otherwise. Probably the the best example of this is when Jesus prays for the men who are crucifying him. Let me read this to you. This is Luke 23, 33. That reads like this. This is amazing. This this, This must have just blown people away when they heard what was happening on Calvary that day. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, they, they, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now these men are literally in the process of methodically, painfully executing Jesus, and Jesus is actively entreating his Father and asking him to bless them as they're doing it to him. In fact, the verbal form in verse 34 indicates an ongoing action. So probably the verse should be translated like this. And Jesus kept saying, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Whoever, as, as Luke writes this, wherever he got the, this testimony from, whatever account he took this from, the person says, yeah, as they were crucifying him, he kept saying it. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Loving your enemies is just so close to the heart of God. It's close to the heart of the gospel. To care for people who do you harm, to pursue their good, it's one of the most distinguishing traits of Christianity. It really is. There are a lot of people in the world that I can think of who are willing to help others. They're willing to do philanthropic work, even for people who are in need. But there aren't many examples of people who will seek to do good for their enemies, to really pursue it for them. We're not talking about merely enduring hostility. That's called pacifism. Jesus is going beyond pacifism here. And we're not even talking about the brave heart type of sacrifice. You know what I'm talking about here? Here, the, the movie Braveheart, in the final scene, William Wallace is mocked and he's tortured and he's murdered like a criminal. And I've always thought of that as a really powerful scene depicting what Christ has done because Wallace, of course, is laying down his life for the sake of freeing his people. It's a pretty good picture of the gospel, right? Yes, it is, in some sense. But actually, the gospel is far more radical than that. It would actually be truer to the gospel if Wallace had sacrificed his life not for the sake of Scotland, 
Not for the sake of his friends and his family. But if Wallace had been sacrificing his life for the sake of his oppressors, the English. Now that will mess with your head. I tried to think, well, what if, what if, that, what if you were watching the movie and, and instead of in that last scene where he's like, freedom, Adrian, freedom. What if in that last scene he, he goes, forgive them. You're like, what? You mean the king? No way! You just would never expect that. And the reason you'd never expect it is because it's not normal. It's not human. It's not natural. It's not a human-like thing to love your enemy. I'll come back to that in a moment. But I want to talk about what is human-like. What it, what, what's very human-like? What's very natural for us? It's natural for us to love our brother. It's natural for William Wallace to give his life for his own people. That's normal. That's what, that's what people do. That's what humans do. That's what a mother does for her children. That's what a father does for his family. Lays down his life for them. And it's definitely a a gospel type of thing to do. But that's kind of a normal thing for people to do. It's the very point Jesus makes in verses 46 and 47. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? It's not strange for human beings to love their own tribe, to love those who love you, to greet people who greet you. And Jesus certainly isn't criticizing that. He's just pointing out that it's only human to do it. It's only normal. It's what you would expect. And to make the point, he uses the two most socially despised groups of people he can think of. Tax collectors and Gentiles. Both of these were considered to be at the bottom of the moral barrel. The tax collectors were sellouts. These are Jews who had decided to work for the Roman government by collecting taxes, and then they inflated the price a little bit and lined their pockets with the profits. Tax collectors were scum. They really were. Everybody hated them. Matthew was a tax collector. Disciples were ticked. The Gentiles is a technical term that referred to anybody who wasn't an Israelite. Therefore, it was essentially the way that the Jews referred to those who were outside the people of God. I don't know what translation you used, Eugene. Was that uh, NIV? Okay, so, so it translates it pagans. That gets, that gets to the point pretty well. These are are outsiders. These are pagans. Non-Jews. To be a Gentile was to be godless, excluded from God's people, and shunned by the Jewish community. And yet, Jesus says, even they know how to greet their brothers. Tax collectors know how to love their brothers. Because it's only human. That's why I said that love for enemies... It's actually one of the most distinguishing traits of Christianity. It's not a very human-like thing to do. It marks us as those who go beyond what's normal 
in the world. And when we do that, when we love our enemies, when we love and greet and pray for those who don't love us and those who don't greet us and those who persecute us, it's one of the primary ways in which we demonstrate ourselves to be children of our Heavenly Father because that's the kind of thing that He does. You want to put Him on display... Be like Him and distinct from the rest in that you're willing to go further. Listen to the logic of verses 44 and 45. I love how this flows. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So there are three things here. Jesus gives a command. He gives us the purpose for the command. And then he explains it. The command is, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? What's the purpose? He gives the purpose. So that... You may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And just to clarify, this isn't telling us that we need to love our enemies in order to become God's children. It's saying that we should love our enemies in order to display ourselves to be resembling our Father. Demonstrate yourself to be a son of your Father. Love your enemies so that you can show that you're a child of God. Then he does the third thing. He explains it. How does, or why, does love for your enemies prove that you're a child of your Heavenly Father? The answer is because your Heavenly Father regularly shows love for His enemies. Verse 45. He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now this is a really rich little insight, actually, that Jesus gives to us right here. He points out that God gives both sun and rain, not only to the righteous, but He gives them to the wicked as well. Not only to the just, but also to the unjust. God's not withholding from People who are His enemies, people who don't walk in His ways, people who don't know Him, people who don't love Him. God's not withholding from them the natural resources that make life possible for human beings. He's providing for their crops. He's providing for their livestock, sun, rain, so that they can eat good food and make a living and enjoy the beauty of creation and recreate and stay healthy and live longer. This is what theologians refer to as God's common grace. That is God's gracious love towards all human beings by giving good things to people who love Him and uh, people who uh, live in rebellion to Him. It's, it's, a, it's a graciousness, it's a love that He's giving to all humanity. He's not distinguishing between the church and those who are outside the church. He's just loving all of us. And Jesus appeals to it as an example of the Father's willingness to love His enemies. 
Let's just take a minute to think about this for a second. I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to blow by the graciousness that I think we're supposed to see here. Let's. Uh, how many people do you think are genuinely worshiping Jesus in Terrytown, New York, right now? Let's say there are 200 people here. There aren't. But let's say there were 200 people at New Hope. First Baptist got a couple hundred. Let's say the Church of the Resurrection, the Spanish-speaking church, has got a couple hundred. That's 600 people. And in case we missed anybody else, let's just add 400 to that number. Let's say there's 1,000 people in Terrytown right now genuinely worshiping Jesus. I think that's probably a gracious overestimate. Terrytown has a population of 11,300 people, which means that a very gracious estimation would still suggest that 10 out of every 11 people alive in this city right now, this village right now, 10 out of 11 are enemies of God. And yet, how many of those 10,000 plus people woke up and had food today? Couple, couple meals by now, probably. Almost all of them. Maybe all of them. And how many are generally in good health? And how many are going to have shelter for a coming hurricane? How many are just outside the doors of this building, enjoying a Sunday afternoon, watching the game, going for a stroll? shopping, eating, they're with their families, taking a nap. And guess who's giving it to them? Our Father. It's all, it's all from Him. It's all a gift from Him to them. Those are gifts that He's giving to His, to his enemies right now. He's sustaining every breath they take. They don't know Him. They don't love Him. They don't thank Him. And they don't care. They don't care. Just like we used to not care. And He keeps giving it to them just like He kept on giving it to us. And just like He keeps on giving it to us because we, we still don't deserve it. We've been reconciled and we're, we're on His side now because He's brought us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light and so by his grace we are in his family but he, we're, we're still we're still just as screwed up in as many ways as all the rest of the people out there we're changing but we got problems and he just keeps giving it to us because he's gracious making the sunrise and the rainfall a lot of it pretty soon here on both the righteous and the unrighteous will we show them the same love Will we, will we show the enemies of God the same love that God shows His enemies? That's, I'm, that's, really, that's really what Jesus is after here. How does this intersect your life? Like who are the people in your life who are functioning as enemies that God is right now sustaining? He's sustaining their life. 
He's giving them breath. He's giving them food. He's giving them shelter. They probably have a job. He's sustaining. They're they're clothed. Who's giving all that to them? He he is. Will Will we do the same? Who in your life is God calling you to love even though they're an enemy? That's what Jesus is calling us to do. And we do it as a demonstration of the fact that we are children of our Heavenly Father. As the saying goes, like father, like son. That's that's what we're after. And that's the note that Jesus wants to end this section with. You are the children of God. And in so many ways, I mean, I don't want I don't want to give us the wrong impression here. In so many ways, we Christians are exactly the same as everybody else in the world. We're sinners in need of a savior. We aren't morally superior to an atheist or to a pagan. We are powerless to change ourselves. We're in the same we're in the same boat. But there are some differences between Christians and non-Christians. Because Jesus has invaded our lives, and by the power of His indwelling Spirit, He's begun a transformation in us. It's not something that we can boast in. It's not something that we can take credit for. But it is a genuine conversion. Paul talks about it as being transferred from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. That's Colossians chapter 1. He refers to it as being united to Christ's resurrection. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that we are a new creation. Listen to this verse, Ephesians 4.24. Here's the question I want you to ask. Who am I? Who are you? According to Ephesians 4.24. Put on the new self. Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. By God's grace, we have been created in the likeness of God. And we have, therefore, a new self. We've been brought from death to life. We're a new creation because we've been transferred from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And Jesus is teaching us what it looks like to be that kind of person. This is what it looks like for a person who's been transferred from darkness to light. And it's different than the way that we once were. It's different than the way that the world is. It's different than the way that the self-righteous scribes and the Pharisees were. The righteousness that Jesus calls us to is something that can only come from a heart that's entered into this new creation, resurrection, kingdom of God reality. And it can only come from somebody who's born again. And if that's not you... If that's not you, it can be. It can be. God is gracious. God is a a Savior. If you know that you're not walking with Christ, Christ is inviting you to belong to Him. You will not be able to live this way unless you are willing to be reconciled to God through Christ, by faith alone, apart from the works of the law. There's nothing that we can do to earn a right standing before God. It's a free gift. And if you receive that gift, God fills us with His Spirit and gives us power. And if we have the power of the Spirit, then 
Let's be like our Father. Let's be like Him. That's what all of these are calling us to. And that's how he ends this section. Verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, that's a hard verse. (laughs) That's a hard verse. It can't mean sinless, flawless perfectionism. It can't mean that. And the reason I know that is because in chapter 6, verse 12, Jesus recognizes that in prayer we're in need of regular forgiveness from God. So the call to perfection here is not a call to sinless, perfect behavior. Perfection is what the law pointed to. It pointed to the perfection of God, and for those who belong to God, it calls us to a heart and a lifestyle that reflects God's own character. The the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees was just so off the mark, it wasn't even on the target. And Jesus is saying, the law pointed to perfection. And you are the people of God. And so your life must take upon itself, by God's grace, increasing conformity to the nature of the character of God. Now, on this side of heaven, we will never make it. But what what I think Jesus wants us to come away from this realizing is that we can never be content with half-hearted obedience. We can never be content with where we are. We went through some of this in the marriage study. We talked about how here's here's just a good rule for thinking about how to grow in grace. One, realize we are all in process. Number two, focus on one thing at a time. And number three, when when you're done with that, remember there's always one more. There's always one more. We're always in the pursuit of uh, greater and greater conformity to our Father, taking upon His character in our lives As Peter says, be holy as God is holy. Let's pray. We are at your mercy. We are a people who need mercy. We are a people who are, uh, we've fallen short, Lord. We've fallen short. We don't don't gather here because we think that that we are um, good people. We gather here because we believe that you're a great Savior. And... We want to be changed. We want to look more and more like our Heavenly Father. And and today, as we've learned, that that there's a call to love our enemies. And we want to be able to do that, Lord. The way that it looks for us is probably different than it looks for a large portion of our world. When when you say, pray for those who persecute you, uh, that's real for us, but it, 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 we, don't ta- we don't taste it at the level that a lot of people do. We pray for our Christian brothers and sisters around the world right now who are enduring severe persecution and ask God that you would sustain them to love their enemies. That they would show themselves to be children of their Father in Heaven. And we pray that you would strengthen us to do the same as we go back into our homes and our workplaces and our neighborhoods, 
be plenty of opportunities to serve others in the days to come. We pray that you would give us a love for those who don't know you. Those who are enemies of God, give us the strength. Thank you, Jesus, for laying down your life for us while we were still enemies. You gave your life for us and reconciled us to the Father. We draw near now and thank you for this throne of grace that you have allowed us to come before. In Jesus' name, and may the God who made light shine out of darkness, shine on into your hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ so that as you behold Christ in the gospel, you see a glorious merciful Savior in increasing measure for all of your days. In Jesus' name, amen.